And so tonight we're going to be in Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews chapter number 10. Hebrews chapter number 10. And again, it's good to see you. Thank you for being here. Uh, it feels like in my world it's been forever since I've done any preaching. When you're off a Sunday and someone else preaches, you know, and I've been in this room for uh, three days at Friday, Saturday, and Sunday, and I didn't do any preaching or teaching. It feels like it's been forever. You're like, Phil, it's been a whole seven days, boss, since you've been back up here. But it's just, but I tell you, I really enjoyed the missions conference with Brother Dan Rogers and Carmen and Alyssa and their family. I thought it was really good. A lot of good teachings, a lot of good things. If you weren't able to be at some of those things, we would love for you to you can go online and listen to those things. You can go to the website and uh, click things, and it'll let you see where everything is there. Saturday, he did a great session on, uh, two sessions on, how do I talk to someone about Christ? How do I actually bring up those conversations with people about who Jesus is? And so I was, I was excited by that, and I just really enjoyed it, and glad as a church for people able to be here and be a part of it. But uh, before we get into Hebrews chapter 10 tonight, let's go to the Lord's Word of Prayer, and then uh, we'll get into this. Lord, we just come to you this evening. Father, we thank you so much for life, Lord, uh, for this week. Lord, regardless of what may be happening or what will happen, I thank you that you are sovereign, that you are in control. And Lord, we ask you that you would just be with us tonight as we study your word, be with us this week as we live out the rest of our weeks. May we do it in a way that is pleasing to you, that will bring glory to the name of Christ. Lord, thank you for everyone that's sitting in this room tonight, Lord. Uh, Lord, it's no accident we're here. Lord, you have something for us. And I pray, Lord, you would just... Let the Word of God speak. May it pour down, Lord, on our hearts and our minds. It's given us what we need. Lord, I know we've mentioned a lot of prayer requests uh, as the different groups met. And a lot of times, Lord, that can stir up things in our hearts and minds that will weigh heavy on us. And Lord, I ask that you would just allow us through your Word just to receive what we need. Lord, I, I pray as I, I communicate this message, Lord, I really pray that you get me out of the way. Lord, help me to say what you have for me to say. Lord, may Christ be glorified in His name. Amen. Um, we're coming to Hebrews chapter 10. And before we get into Hebrews chapter 10, just a moment, I'm going to show you. I, I have like favorite pictures. I don't know if you have favorite pictures of like your family, your kids, people, those things. Um, I have a couple of favorite pictures of Rachel that I have. One of them is the one we took recently when we had the little Christmas thing. I didn't say, ooh, ah, oh. And don't worry about the guy on this side. He's, he, he definitely brings the picture down in quality. But, you know, Miss Tasha had everything decorated real nice. And we took a picture like that because Rachel and I, I don't know how the rest of you do it, but Rachel and I have tons of pictures of our kids or her and the kids and, or me and the kids. There's not a lot of pictures of, of us that way. In fact, if you go to our website, there's a, pic, a family picture. It's only seven or eight years old. I mean, it's pretty old. And so I know everyone's like, who's the kid that's pastoring the church there when they look at that? And so, uh, but anyhow, it's, it's, I have a lot of pictures like this. I have a picture uh, on my desk that is probably my favorite picture of Rachel. It's when we're at Crown, where, I went to, where we went to school at. And at Crown, it was kind of funny. There weren't a lot of dating situations. They were pretty tight on the rules. Some of y'all would have no idea how tight. Some of y'all like sign my kids up for that. But anyhow, this is what, I mean, it was... We had these benches and like a courtyard, and it was always funny. You would like fight with other couples to get to a bench because you had to be in the open in front of God and everyone else. 
when you sat there, you know, they had a lot of rules. But anyway, I have this picture that we're sitting there talking, and it's a picture of her just sitting on the bench, and she just kind of turns, and before she can get mad at me for taking her picture, I got her to laugh about something. And so she's smiling, and she's probably, if I'm not mistaken, about 19 years old at the time, and it's really like my favorite picture of her. And so I have that at my on my desk. I take it, you know, sometimes when I go on a trip or something, especially if she can't go, I like it. It's just a really good picture that I have of her. Um, and I really like it. And every time I look at it, I always think to myself, yeah, buddy, you did well. You know, you married up. You did good, man. You did good. Because, you know, I look at her, I think she's beautiful. And you look at me and you, you kind of know what you got here. But anyhow, that's kind of the thing. But as much as I love that picture, that picture is not fun to cuddle with. As much as I like that picture, it's not very good at hugging. Uh, the picture doesn't tell very good stories or jokes, and Rachel does a lot better than she thinks she does at telling stories and doing those kind of things. Uh, that picture will just sit there, and even something that's interesting about that picture, if that picture got destroyed, thank God through a digital world, I can just print and I can get another picture of that. I'm not going to have this overwhelming grief if I lose that picture, because it's just a picture of my wife. It's just a beautiful representation of who my wife is, but it's not my wife, if it makes sense. What I want us to look at tonight, because I've been just super excited to get to Hebrews chapter 10, and I want us to see some things in Scripture here, and some things I think we can understand, is that we get to Hebrews chapter 10, of course Hebrews chapter 11, which is the hall of faith, and we love talking about all those people. In Hebrews chapter 10, we start talking about let us draw nigh to God, you know, forsake not the assembling of yourselves together. We get into all that. But all of that is just kind of an outward byproduct of what the first 18 verses of chapter 10 are. So I'm going to be totally honest with you. We are not going to get through chapter 10 tonight. It's not going to happen, okay? I pray with God's help we get through this first section tonight. And I, I kind of went a little old school on you. I don't have any screens. I don't have any slides. I just want us to see the Bible for what it is tonight, maybe to help you. But I want us to look at this topic tonight as Christ, the perfect sacrifice. We're going to look at Christ as the perfect sacrifice. And you say, well, why do you talk about the picture and Rachel? You'll see here in just a moment. Because I really believe a lot of us are very happy with a picture, a form of God, and don't really have the reality of the person of God. And so we'll see some things here. In chapter 10, verse number 1, uh, you'll see here it says, For the law, having a shadow or a picture of good things to come, and not the very image of the things, can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers there unto perfect. Okay, so you see kind of an old argument that we've been going through and looking at over the last several weeks with chapters 8 and 9, and even in chapter 7, is that what did God do? God gave Moses the Ten Commandments, the law, and what is the law, basically? It's basically morality 101, right? Here's these ten, ten laws that you're supposed to do. They're simple, they're not complex, but they seem impossible to follow through, right? I mean, it's not some great uh, thing to do. They're pretty easy to follow, but they're hard to obey, if you would, in that. And, and so when you see this, you say, well, what do you mean about that? Well, honestly, I think you can take the Ten Commandments and pretty much anybody, believer or non, is going to agree with the morality of the Ten Commandments. I mean, you, you're, you're probably not going to find a guy that says, you just need to continually be a liar, okay? You know, just lie all you can. Just lie. It's really good to lie. 
You're, and if, by the way, if you meet that person, you probably don't even hang out with them real long. And, or you're going to meet that person that says, that lady that says, hey, don't worry, just steal every chance you get. It's really okay to be a thief. And if you do meet that person, don't invite them over to your house, okay? So you have that idea. Or you're not going to meet that guy that says, you know, really, instead of pouring all of my love and time and devotion into my marriage, I'm going to really go over to my neighbor's marriage and go into that. So you're not going to really see that. Those things may happen, but you really think the, the Ten Commandments is just morality 101. It's basically the law and what us needing to understand there. So what God is saying here in the, through uh, Paul, I believe, wrote Hebrews, is said in verse 1, is that the law, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, if you will, is just a shadow or a picture of good things to come. Now what are those good things to come? Christ, right? Christ is the new covenant, His sacrifice, and those things that you see there. And if you continue reading, it says, what about the Old Testament or what about the law? It says what in that verse? It says, it can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year, continually or completely or never ending, make the comers thereunto perfect. So the issue is this. Because we fail in morality as something as simple as the Ten Commandments, which is not really that simple, God says, great, I'm going to institute the tabernacle. We looked at this last week. We said, what happens in the tabernacle? The tabernacle, you had priests. It was kind of like a 24-7 church service. You had these priests that would go back and forth in the holy place, not in the holy of holies, but the holy place, the outer courtyard. People would come in when they had sinned and felt guilty for their sin. They would come in. They would say, hey, I've messed up. The uh, priest would take the scroll, the Old Testament, say, or the law, yes, you have messed up. And he'd look at him and give those wonderful words of advice. Don't do it again. Right? I mean, that really helps you out a lot when you know you're wrong. Hey, don't do that again. Hey, let's sacrifice an animal. Be on your way. But what was the problem with that look we looked at last week? The problem with coming, confessing, being told you're wrong, sacrificing, and going away, the tabernacle had a major flaw. It never could completely give you a clean conscience and remove your guilt for your sin because you're constantly going to keep sinning. And that's what we looked at last week. The blood of Christ is the only thing that can give us complete forgiveness and clean conscience before God and when we looked at those things. And so they started this very ritualistic thing. They kind of got stuck in that. Uh, they'd come and say, hey, and it don't it sound like us? Hey, I sinned. I'm wrong. Forgive me for that. Okay. I went to a church service. They told me everything I did was wrong. Like, thanks, I know I was wrong. And so I get on my face, whether it's in my chair or whether I come to the altar, I ask forgiveness. I tell God I'm never going to do it anymore. In fact, God, I'm going to do this for you now just to make it all better. And then you go out the doors to find yourself only what? I goofed up again. And so you had this ritualistic religion, if you would, and it caused the tabernacle wasn't meant to be what Christ sacrificed, that perfect sacrifice was meant to be. And so we see that. And so let's go on to verse 2, because there's a lot to do here. All right, it says, for verse 2, For then would they not have ceased to be offered, because the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of their sins. All right, so let me, let me tell you what this verse is saying together. So basically, here's what he's saying. That the tabernacle wasn't working because they kept coming in, they kept confessing, they kept going back to their sin. It's kind of like this. It's kind of like taking medicine for something that doesn't do any good for you. So you take medicine, 
it doesn't do any good for you, so you go back and do what? You take the medicine again, it doesn't do any good for you, but you keep doing that crazy road. Uh, you say, well, put that in my language, Phil. Alright. Through reading the Bible, in your own devotions, through hearing a sermon that you hear, or God through circumstance, or in a church service, God convicts you, you get on your knees, God, I'm sorry, I'll never do it again, I'm rededicating my life to the Lord. Right? It's only what? Next week, God, forgive me, for I have sinned, now I'm going to rededicate my life to the Lord. Now you're going to hear me say something that for you that didn't grow up independent Baptist, this is probably something you don't really understand. For you that are independent Baptist growing up, uh, you probably won't understand it. We used to have services where it was constantly pushed down our throats. Who needs to rededicate their life to the Lord? Come forward, rededicate your life to the Lord. You can't rededicate something that hasn't been dedicated to begin with. You with me on that? You can't rededicate something that never was dedicated to God to begin with. Okay? So, there has to be salvation. And I get, I get to understand, you know, confessing of sin, those things. But here's the problem, what they're saying. Basically, verse 2 is saying this. The Israelites were trying to conform to God's standards instead of being transformed into God's standards. We do that a lot. Right? I feel guilty because that's not how a Christian is supposed to act. That's not what a Christian is supposed to watch. That's not what a Christian is supposed to do. So I want to conform. And that's why I say, when I say, God, forgive me, I want to rededicate my life to the Lord. And God, I'm going to start doing this. And God, I'm going to start doing that. What you're saying ultimately is this. Good things, right? I want to conform instead of allowing the Holy Spirit to what? Transform. It's like this. You do things for people and you will keep doing them to either one, you get tired of doing it, or two, you get aggravated at that person. But when the Holy Spirit transforms you, it doesn't matter what the exterior people or circumstances do. Example. Don't plan on this, okay? I fall into sin. I have to resign as pastor. Any church that has that, you will normally see when a pastor leaves a church, half the congregation will run out the back door. You know why? They were conforming to a standard that the pastor had instead of being transformed saying, okay, that was God, and if God used that person there, now God can bring someone else in and do the same thing. So you with me on that? You can use a variety of things in that. See, it's kind of like this. Have you ever started... That's the joke. Me and Justin were joking about it the other day. Uh, we grew up the same way. We'd have these guys come in saying, rock music, this music, all this music's bad, and we all feel really guilty... And so we would chuck every cassette and CD we had and we just throw away lots of money on this horrible music. Because we wanted to conform and we didn't want to be the outsider, right? We didn't want to feel guilty. Well, no, I'm hanging on to my ACDC. You know, I'm going to hang on to that part. You know, We're not doing it. Because even those that really didn't feel convicted of it wanted to do it to go along with a positive peer pressure, right? To only within two months because we weren't really transformed and we didn't put anything back in that was godly glorifying. We're back at the store buying the same thing. Okay, so both of us remember doing that. Okay, good. Okay, the rest of you are just very holy. I appreciate that, okay? Some of you are like, why did you just say something about ACDC? But anyhow. Um, <laughs> but I don't mean that just in that. I mean it in anything. Now, don't get me wrong. I'd rather have positive pressure than negative. But do you understand there's a difference. When you conform, it won't last. 
But when the Holy Spirit is transforming you by the renewing of your minds, as you read about in Romans chapter 12, and be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by renewing of your mind, a changing of your mind and your heart. So, anyways, that's what he talks about there, and that idea of being transformed. It, basically, the problem is they kept coming back, kept coming back, kept coming back, until they kind of got tired of, of doing that. So, anyways, let's keep reading. Verses 3 and 4. But in those sacrifices, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sins. Now, this is very interesting, right? Because up until Christ came, what was the job? Take a bull, take a goat, kill it, their blood, and you, you, you made your confession of sins. Once a year, the high priest would go in with a spotless lamb, uh, shed the blood, poured on the mercy seat. Why? Forgiveness of sins. But here you have the writer saying, those sacrifices, by the way, reminded you of sin you've already forgiven. I don't know if you caught that part. I've already got forgiveness, but we're going to have to be rem- remembrance of all my sins for the year. How would you like to be reminded of every sin you committed in 2019? Now nah, I'm good. <laughs> you know, But a constant reminder of that sin. So you see the guilt that comes back even on the idea of that day of atonement with that. Okay? So you have that, but here's what he's also saying. God up to this point has been saying what? Bulls and goats is what it is, right? But now he says here, it's not possible that the blood of bulls and goats would bring forgiveness of sin. Is God contradicting himself? No. God's saying the tabernacle's a picture of the real perfect sacrifice that will be Christ that will be once for all with that and I'm kind of getting ahead of myself there a little bit but I'm excited about it but here's the thing to remember remember we talked about last week ultimately what was God saying to them in chapter 9 I don't really want your, your goats I don't really want the bulls I want your heart by the way I can be transformed when God has my heart I can be conformed and still sacrifice to God make sense? I can sacrifice to God and be conformed, but when God has my heart, that's when the transformation starts happening. That's when the change that really lasts will start happening. And that's why he's saying, hey, the blood of bulls and goats, he's like, I don't really need your, the bulls. God's not sitting there going, man, I really need some bulls and goats sacrificed today. That's going to help me in my godness, if you will, to be that. He said, no, no, no. This is all because sin needs to be paid for. It's a picture of that. The sacrifice of that until the second covenant or Christ comes. But he says, I really just want your heart. I know we talk about this. Just give you an example. If you had to choose, and I know I say this a lot, if you had to choose between your with your children having their obedience or having their heart, which one do you want? I want their heart. I want their heart. Because they can obey and be quiet, and I totally get fooled thinking, man, look at those beautiful angelic creatures. They obey, they don't say a word, and they graduate high school, and they're wilder in a striped-tailed ape. What happened? They knew how to conform. They knew how to sacrifice, but there was no transformation. There was nothing on the inside there with that. And so we need to remember that because we're creatures that are wired differently. We are wired to think, do, do, do. What I got to do? What I got to do? What I got to do? You know, in those ways, and look into those things. And God ultimately says, hey, I don't delight in burnt offerings. I don't delight in your sacrifices. 
So he basically says, you know, I made this body that we're going to read about here in just a moment. So I made this so what? To help us in that. Let's keep reading here what it says in verse number 5. Wherefore, when he cometh, who's he? Jesus, by the way, when you're in church, ask you who you think it is. Jesus is going to be it like 98% of the time, okay. Ah, no, Abraham. No, but that's Sunday night. It's been So yeah, Jesus. So, so when... So wherefore, when he, Jesus, cometh into the world, he saith, Sacrifice and offering thou wouldest not, but a body hast thou prepared me, and burnt offerings and sacrifices for sin thou hast had no pleasure. This is basically the same thing, is that Christ is going to come in bodily form to be sacrificed. Why? Because all the other sacrifices, he hasn't had any pleasure in those. And so basically, God is saying this, if I can paraphrase it. Because of the tabernacle system of works, sacrifices, works, sacrifices, and ritual without having a heart, God says, I'm going to come and take care of this and I'm going to send my son. That's what it's saying in verse 6. I'm going to send my son because I don't delight in the sacrifice. I delight in your heart and having that relationship with you. Which, by the way, I thought Brother Dan did an excellent job in explaining salvation is ultimately God's cry of saying, let me have relationship with you again. That is broken that we've done on our part. All right, verse 7. Let's read verses 7 through 9. Then said I, Lo, I come, in the volume of the book it is written of me, to do thy will, this is speaking of Christ, to do thy will, O God. Above when he said, Sacrifice and offering and burnt offerings, and an offering for sin thou wouldest not, neither hadst pleasure therein, which are offered by the law. Then said he, Lo, I come to do thy will, O God. He taketh away the first, that he may establish the second. Alright, so here's the situation. This is basically to paraphrase a little bit. Jesus is going to come. And Jesus came and He said, The old way of making this right, I'm going to do away with that. I'm going to do away with that. And I don't know if you picked up the language there. Uh, two different times He says what? Thy will. Does that sound familiar at all? When He's talking about sacrifices, He's going to give His life to sacrifice. And He says two different times, Do thy will, O God, verse 7. He says again in verse 9, Lo, I've come what? To do thy will. What did Jesus say over and over again? I've come to do the will of him that sent me. Garden of Gethsemane, what? Not my will, but thine be done. Right before the sacrifice. Right before the cross. Christ is saying, this is why I'm coming. Now, there's some things here that I want us to see. And looking through, this is why Christ is coming. You're just like, Phil, you're talking about salvation on Wednesday night. Again, we're not going to really appreciate. And it's not going to transform us to do the rest of the verses in chapter number 10. We can conform, but we need to transform. And what will transform us is really understanding how Jesus is that perfect, complete sacrifice for our sins and that we don't have to do these rituals, do these different things. Okay, so again, let's get down to verse number 10. It says, By the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ. And what's those next three words? Once for all. Now I got to take a moment here. Up to this point, what did they have to do? Man, sacrifice. Feel guilty. They 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 come in with the same guilt, the same shame, the same fear. Sacrifice. Go out, live their week, come back. Same fear, same guilt, same sacrifice they have to do over and over again. And Jesus is saying this. He's saying, "I'm going to come and I'm going to sacrifice myself." In verse 10, the body of Christ, why? So you can do it one time. You want to know why you cannot lose your salvation? 
Because Christ died once for all. And to say that you can be saved by the blood of Christ, lose your salvation, which by the way, I don't have enough power to get me saved. I definitely ain't going to have enough power to get me unsaved. Okay, just throwing that out on a side note. But to say I need to be saved again is to say that Christ's death the first time wasn't enough. wasn't sufficient. He died once for all, so that way we don't have to continually have that. Now you say, Phil, I sin a lot as a, as a Christian. Welcome to the club. We have jackets. We all, we all do that. Okay? But my confession of sin as a believer is to help the relationship with God, not create a relationship with God. When my kids do something to disobey me, I don't say, you're out of the family, you're gone, throw them out the door. Even if I did that, wherever they go, they are still legally, they're, they're, it's binding, they are my child, right? It doesn't matter. I, I, it's whatever I want to do, I cannot get rid of them. No matter how far they go, they're my child. They were born into my family. They have my blood running through their veins. The understanding is that with the sacrifice of Christ, when we say, I'm so glad I'm part of the family of God, it's like actually being born into the family of God. You're born into God's family. And He says, I did that once for all. Once for all. And that way that we can have salvation, and that salvation is complete in Christ, once for all, for that time. And so the idea of this is that we're not going to need to get saved over and over and over and over and over and over and over again. Now, I don't know about you. I'll just take a little side moment just for a moment here. Because I really want to get these other verses. If you doubt your salvation, I'm not trying to give you a false hope. You're looking at somebody that doubted their salvation a ton in their teenage years. Like worried going to bed at night if I'm going to die and wake up in hell. After, I really believe, as an eight-year-old boy, I gave my heart and life to Christ. I got saved. You say, what prayer do you... What, I really can't tell you, but I know in my heart that I trusted in Christ as a, as a kid could do. Okay? Childlike faith. But I also have to tell you that the way I live my life a lot of times was the reason why I doubted my salvation, if I can just be honest. In my life, I can't give it 100% across the board but I will say every single time, and I doubted my salvation more than I have fingers. I mean, doubted to where I was shook, worried. And even as an adult, I could always look back and say that my relationship with God was not where it needed to be in that moment. And by the way, if my relationship's not right with God, guess who's not able to speak to me? But guess who is? The author of confusion. Not God, right? So if I can be so messed up about my own salvation, I truly can't hear what God wants me to do in my life, in my marriage, in my day-to-day. I can't do that, okay? And so that's why it says make your calling and election sure. To know that you know that you're saved. Drive it a mile deep in the ground. Anchor it down that you know you're saved. That you know Christ as your Savior. Because I think if you've ever doubted your salvation, I don't know if you've ever done this. I have a lot. Lord, if I'm not saved, Lord, forgive me of my sins. I believe Jesus down the cross. Please save me. If I'm not saved, God, please make sure I'm saved, okay? I just want to be saved. If I didn't do it right, God, I want to be, you know what I mean? I don't know if any of the rest of you have ever done that. Can I be honest with you? I just did that as as a work. God, if I didn't say it right, God, if I didn't mean it that time, I really mean it this time. You know what I mean? I wonder sometimes God is like, really? I know your heart. Okay? But by the way, if it's something you doubt your salvation, you ought to talk to somebody about it or just in your heart and your mind or else you've got to deal with it. 
because it is no, there is no peace in the life of a child of God that has constant struggle of whether or not they are a child of God. There is no peace. It's hard to go. It's hard to go forward when you keep wondering if you're even in the family. So nail that down. No, know for sure that you're safe. Okay. All right. So back to the fun stuff here. Okay. Uh, so back to the text here. So I'm going to show you something in verse number 11, and, and you have to understand it may not mean a lot to you, but to a first-century Hebrew. It was almost blasphemous, okay? Now remember, they're all busy, right? They all did a lot of things. And look in verse 11. And every priest standeth daily, verse 11, ministering and offering oftentimes, or a lot of times, the same sacrifice which can never take away sin. So he's saying this. Guess what it means this. In the tabernacle, guess what was not in the tabernacle? Chairs. No chairs. Because a chair is a symbol of you sit down, your, your rest because your work is complete. And as a priest, there were no chairs there. Because you were constantly dealing with people and doing sacrifices and going back and forth. There were no. And by the way, I don't know if it says that. He, not only that, but all those sacrifices could never fully, what? Take away sin. So there was constant confession, constant sacrifice, constant movement. But look at verse 12. But this man, who's that again? Hey, all right, we're getting Jesus. After he had offered one sacrifice for sins, what's the next word? Forever. Okay, let me ask this. My past is part of forever. My present is part of forever. My future is part of forever. So you know what that means? My sins that I committed before I was saved are forgiven because of salvation in Christ. My sins that I'm currently committing, okay, are forgiven, and the sins of my future are forgiven. You say, Phil, I don't believe that. Can I tell you the only way that you can have sins forgiven before Christ is if you just happen to be like 2,400 years old, okay? You were here before Christ was here, okay? So when he says this here, get this, that all of my sins, past, present, and future, as a child of God, are forgiven, okay? I confess sin to have the right relationship with God, but the penalty of my sin, which is death and hell, has been paid for, okay? So it says, but this man, Christ, after he had one sacrifice for sins forever, what's those next two words? Sat down. Now remember, no chairs in the tabernacle. No chairs in the Holy of Holies. That guy had bells on him and a rope around him. He was not hanging in there longer and he needed to hang in there. Okay? But what, if it's so awesome, and this was something that drove these people crazy looking at this verse, because look what it says here. It says that Jesus is going to do it very differently. He said, Jesus offered one-time sacrifice for sins forever, and what? Sat down at the right hand of God. You know what that means? It is finished. Now, to me, that's exciting. That's why I don't want to run past the first 18 verses of Hebrews chapter 10. That's why if I get that, I have no problem with forsake not the assembling of yourselves together as a matter of some list. I don't have a problem with draw nigh to God. Let us consider one another unto good works. All the rest of the verses, if I can truly grasp that in my life I don't have to constantly get forgiveness of sins to have a just have a relationship with God because you know what? He did what no one else could do. He paid the price for our sins and Jesus is sat down. He said, it's done. It's over. I paid for it. That's why I get kind of choked up anytime we sing Jesus paid it all. 
because I know Hebrews chapter 10 verse 12. Hebrews chapter 10 verse 11, the priest had to constantly keep doing it. Constantly, constantly. There was no non-stop. That's why he says back in chapter 7, there had to be many priests. Why? Because they kept dying. <laughs> and people kept sinning. <laughs> and that's what happened. But it says, what did Jesus do? One time, sacrifice for all my sins forever. And now, because my sin, because of salvation, His sacrifice on the cross, all of my sins, past, present, and future, are forgiven. And Christ can say, it's over. It's finished. I can sit down. You ever wonder why Christ lived the kind of life that He lived? You ever got to wonder, like He was always traveling for the most part? He never had a home. Because what's the home? It's a dwelling place of rest and comfort. Even in the way Jesus lived, it was a picture to us from His birth having to flee because you remember that they were going to go kill all the babies in Bethlehem that were two years old and under. Even in all of that and how He did and how He went and all the places, He constantly went because He was going to work for us until salvation be complete for us and say, it is finished, I'm done. Even in the way He lived, He lived that way. And so when we see this, to me it's, just, it's awesome that when you read about this, the sacrificial death of Christ covered us from all sins. And it says that He's seated at the right hand of the Father. And I tell you, that was super awesome when I read that, just studying that. It's just thinking about that Jesus is seated at the right hand of the Father. And I really want to get to verse 18 like really fast, so I'm going to just kind of read through these other real quick. It says in verse 13, From henceforth expecting till His enemies be made His footstool. And that basically means this, if just for sake of time getting into it. We're studying in Revelation and, and Sunday School, by the way. We're at chapter 5. That is my, by far my favorite chapter of all of Revelation is chapter 5 because it gets into how Christ is worthy. He's the only one worthy to open the books, loose the seals, everything that goes into that. If you want to listen to that anyway. And so that, that's really cool. But it's saying that until Christ's enemies, He conquers them. When He conquers His enemies, which we don't necessarily know who they are, that's when we'll get the return of Christ. It's another prophecy of the return of Christ. Look at verse 14. For by one offering, He hath what? Perfected or made complete forever them that are sanctified. I tell you, if you wanted to sometimes just chew on a verse, chew on verse 14, it says this basically, by Christ coming and being sacrificed, what has He done to you? He has made you perfect. Now you say, I sin, I mess up. That's right. I heard someone say this, and you've heard me say this before. God the Father had to treat Jesus like Barabbas so that He could treat Barabbas like Jesus. Barabbas was a scoundrel that deserved to die, deserved the penalty, and God the Father had to treat His Son as someone that deserved that so He could take the one that deserved that and treat it like His Son. That means this. When God looks at us, because of the sacrifice of Christ, he looks at us and sees perfection. He sees clean. He sees ultimately that wonderful word, forgiven. Now you say, Phil, I'm not perfect. I understand what I mean by that. But we are in the image of Christ when it comes to hell and heaven. Now because of that, man, I want to live my life to please Him. I don't do those things so I might acquire those things in those things that we look at. But it says, what does it do for us? Also, talking about losing your salvation, for by one offering He hath perfected what? Forever. Last time I checked, forever means forever. 
I don't know a better word. As Tennessee people, it's about as simple as we can get it. Forever, all time. And what does it say? Them that are sanctified. Sanctified means set apart. It also means it's put into the proper place. What does that mean? The relationship that Dan talked about, God has done, by, by the sacrifice of His Son, God has put us back in the proper place. He has sanctified us to where He wants us to be and continually make us more like Him. Um, man, a lot of good verses there. But I really want to get down to verse 18. Verse 15 says, Whereof the Holy Ghost also is a witness to us, for after that He had said before, This is the covenant that I will make, verse 16, with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts, and in their minds will I write them. That is basically saying this. Guess when this transformation happens. After we're saved, and what happens? God puts His law, His instructions for our life, where? He puts it in our minds to think on and in our hearts because without our heart, it doesn't matter. He writes His law on our hearts. Now verse 17 and 18 are where I want to get. I didn't get through a lot of my notes, but that's cool. Alright, verse 17 is this. Not only does He write it in our hearts and minds what He desires, but look at verse 17. And their sins, and you put your name, and my sins and my iniquities, this is Christ, will I remember no more. If you like underlining verses and highlighting verses, you need to be encouraged today. Can I tell you simply this? God is saying this, and Phil's sins and Phil's iniquities, I choose to remember no more. Now that verse is not very exciting if you think you're a good person. If you think you're pretty good, you think you've got something to offer the kingdom of God, you've got money, you've got talent, that verse don't mean a whole lot to you. That verse means a whole lot to you when you realize you are a scoundrel. <laughs> it really does. That verse means a lot to you when you realize, hey, I am nobody outside of the grace of God. And when I think of that verse and say that God tells me, hey, I choose to remember your sins no more. I'm not going to hold them against you. People in this life will hold all kinds of things against you. I mean, it's going to be one of those things that, oh yeah, we're going to forgive about that, but you really get to a problem and it's, no one seems to be budging, a lot of times they go back to that thing and they pull that thing back out. Here's my trump card right here. This is why I should get my way. God's like, what are you talking about? Well, God, my sins, God, my struggles, all these things that I have gotten, God's like, I don't know what you're talking about. They're forgiven. They're done. But God, because of the things that I had in my past, because of the things that I deal with in my life, man, I'm going to do this and this and this. And God's saying, why are you putting that on my altar? I've already forgiven you of all that. My altar's covered. My altar's covered by the blood of my son. Get your stuff off my altar. Is what he's saying. Get your, I'm going to do this, this, and this to make you happy with my life. Get it off my altar because it's not going to make me happy. My son's sacrifice is what? The propitiation. That's what the forgiveness is. Now that's not saying we don't want to do right. That's not saying we don't do offerings. But Christ is saying, I don't need your offering. Now here at Emmanuel, we love your offerings. We have these little plates. We pass around all those wonderful things, okay? God doesn't need it. We do. Okay, all right. How to get you to smile a little bit there. But look at verse 18 and we'll finish with this. Now where remission or forgiveness of these is, there is no more offering for sin. This is where Paul is trying to get to. All these chapters that you're like, man, Phil, you feel like there's been a lot of repeat in these last few weeks. Paul's trying to, I believe it's Paul saying this, 
Now, where this remission is, where this forgiveness of sin is, guess what? There's no more need of sacrifice. There's no more need of offering for sin. You're forgiven. And you say, Phil, what do I do with this? Okay, great. What do I do with this walking out of here tonight? What I want you to walk out of here tonight is to realize this. Every person in this room is wired a certain way. Some, let me ask, how many of you are rule followers? Raise your hand. Okay, all right, good. Some of you, that was painful. You didn't want to raise your hand, but because you are a rule follower, you're like, this is just a, he asked me, so i got to raise my hand. I'm a rule follower. So when I read, these, read this book and I get convicted of something, I think, oh, I'm not doing that, doing that. I want to go and say, okay, God, now I'm going to do this for you and do this for you and do this for you now to make you happy with me. He already looks at me as he looks at his son. Now some people will say, Phil, be careful. You're giving people a license to sin. Grace is a license to sin. No, no. It's not a license to sin. Grace just really reveals that there's a salvation in you to begin with, to be honest with you. Some people will take this and say, so you're telling me I'm forgiven, I'm good, I can go live any way I want to live. Not what I'm saying. By the way, if you do that, you probably want to check your salvation. What I'm saying is this forgiveness, this ultimate cleansing, this ultimate standing before Him, perfect, and He can say it is finished. The work is done. Makes me want to hit my knees every morning and say, Holy, 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 the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. It makes me want to get up and when the pressures of my family and the pressures of the world want me to turn to the flesh and turn selfish, it makes me say, no, no, no. He's worthy to be the right kind of dad, to be the right kind of husband, to be the right kind of pastor, to be the right kind of whatever. He's worthy. Hey, when I think of that and I wake up and I, it's like, I don't really feel like going to church today. I don't feel like reading my Bible today. I don't feel like... He's worthy. Because there's no more sacrifice needed. That's what I want us to grab. Is grace dangerous? It is. Because in my moments of weakness, I think it's a moment for me to go into sin and it's not for that. But if nothing else, walk away tonight knowing this in your guilt and trying to play God and trying to make God happy with your life. You can't do it. There's nothing in you that God says, they'll just give me this. I'll be happy with it. He's God. <laughs> he could say, I want your life now. He's God. He's got it all. But it ought to make us realize because of that perfect sacrifice, man, I ought to want to live a life that's pleasing to Him. And I ought to quit living for myself in these things that we face. Let's stand together and we'll pray.